You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Have you ever had an experience that required you to have a crisis of faith or a crisis in your belief? Have you ever gone through that and experienced that before? I mean, this could come in any myriad of ways. It could be you know, maybe some, some desperate diagnosis. It could be some situation at home. But that moment in life where you really have to wrestle with God and with your faith. Now, this is important because uh, what I want to do today is show you how those crises of faith moments give you the opportunity to point back to God in your life as God is inviting you to join him in the work that he's doing in the world. So if you're visiting with us today, we want to say welcome. If you're watching online, we're glad you're here. If you're listening later on a podcast or a video, welcome. If you're picking up somewhere in the middle of this series, we're in a series that we've been building week to week. Don't worry. Everything I say today, you can get without the previous information. But in a nutshell, where we've been is this. God is a loving being, and he desires a relationship with you that is real and personal, but not just with you, but with everybody around you, everybody in the world, and he's pursuing that with them. So because God is a loving God and pursuing that, he is at work in your life and in the lives of everybody you will ever meet. And because of that, he's inviting those who love him back to join him in making a difference in the world, in the lives of the people he is pursuing. And so last week we talked about hearing from God, being able to listen to God and discern when God is moving in your life and he's calling you to join him in a specific work that intersects what he's doing with the lives of other people. And so this week we're going to talk about that moment because typically when God calls you to do something with him, it requires this thing called control and usually surrendering it. God almost always calls you to do something that is bigger than you, bigger than you are able to actually do on your own. In fact, let me just give you a quick testimony from a guy named Nate Mishler. If you know Nate, Nate's a great guy, goes here with his wife and family. You may have seen his trucks or vans driving around, Mishler Plumbing, um, and for the great low price of $50 a month, I could put your name in a sermon too. I'm joking, Nate's a personal friend. I didn't say his company was good, but they are good anyway. They are good, I'm teasing. All right, here's Nate's word. So Nate, this summer, felt called by God to lead a mission trip, and here's their story. I was ready. I'd been planning for months. I had felt the tug to lead a mission trip ever since my first trip to Haiti last year. After traveling to Peru in February of this year, my heart was captured by missions. I was hooked. But I didn't want to be a drain on a leader and take up a spot every time from somebody else. I knew it was my duty to lead if I was going to return. And not returning was simply not an option. The only problem was that I was way underqualified. Sound like Moses we talked about a couple weeks ago? I had never been to seminary. I'm not on staff at a church. And when it came to experience, well, I had about two weeks under my belt outside of the U.S. So when Tim Gerber, another gentleman who goes here, approached me about co-leading a trip to Haiti with his family, I was ecstatic. Tim had plenty of trip-leading experience, but had never been to Haiti. My wife, Sybil, and I had been there to Haiti, and we knew missionaries, and we even knew some families, so we had something to add to the trip as well. So it began. We made a great team. Tim had lots of resources and connections. Sybil was the relational one who really helped the team to gel together, and I got to turn my OCD loose and organize to my heart's content. 
I had spreadsheets, assessments, blueprints, and any other kind of data you can imagine all tucked away in my tabbed, divided, three-ring binder. Does that not sound like the guy you want being your plumber? I'm just saying. I could not have been more prepared to follow God's call to take 21 people to Haiti for an amazing trip. I just had to get them there, I thought, through the airport and back again. The rest would be all on God. On July the 7th of this year, we headed to the airport at 4.30 in the morning. We met the team. We flew to Fort Lauderdale for the first leg of the trip. That was the last thing that went according to my three-ring binder. (laughs) As we were preparing to change airlines, we got a phone call from back home. There was significant rioting and unrest that morning in Haiti. And now we are stuck in an airport in a holding pattern. Things began to get tense. Questions began to arise among our team members. Well, how bad are things in Haiti right now? Are our friends down there okay? Are we still gonna go? What about all the money we raised? This was totally out of my comfort zone. Suddenly, we were thrust into a situation in which we were completely out of control. What made it worse was I had no answers for my team. I felt exposed and insecure. We anxiously awaited for phone calls from back in the States to give us answers. Soon, I would learn that no trip to Haiti was even going to be possible. Oh, great. Now what? To be honest, I wasn't even sure what we were talking about. Like, are we going to go home? Go somewhere else? Are we going to start some street ministry in Fort Lauderdale? (laughs) You know, on Matt's trip, we went to Miami Beach on our layover, you know. We have good time on mission trips. When God is ready to do something in you, he is going to lead you to a crisis of belief. These crises of belief moments are usually tests of your faith. That does not mean fail the test, go to hell. What it means is a crisis of your faith is an opportunity for God to grow you and show off his greatness through you. Because see, at the end of every God's story is God's glory. You can clap for that. I like your response better than the last service. It was like nothing. At the end of every God's story is God's glory. And the reason that's important is because for most of us, we are far too busy living our own stories. We're far too wrapped up in things that we can manage, things that we can control, things that we can understand and see and grasp, and therefore we never really get to see the movement of God in our midst because it's really all done in human ingenuity and power and strength. In the book, Henry Blackaby, I challenge you guys, in case you're visiting or new or watching this later, uh, we're, we're in a series going through this book, Experiencing God. You can see this picture over here. I recommended everybody read it and actually put together a reading schedule that began for us in August. It's okay if you're just now visiting with us or watching this online. Just go by the book. You can find the reading schedule online. What we said was read one chapter three times a week. So Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, just read one chapter. We'll get through it together. The book goes far deeper than I can. It's not too late. Or if you fell behind like some people have, just pick it up wherever you left off. You'll catch back up to us, I promise. Here's what he says in the book. When God asks you to do something you cannot do, you will face a crisis of belief. You'll have to decide, don't miss this, what you really believe about God. Can he and will he do what he has said he wants to do through you? 
God can do the seemingly impossible through your ordinary life. How you respond to his invitation reveals what you truly believe about God regardless of what you say. Everybody knows this, right? You know this with your kids, parents. Your words don't mean a thing. You can warn and caution and threaten anything you want, but until you act in response to what you have said, your words mean nothing. Spouses, you know this. You can make promises and empty promises about what you're gonna do or when you're gonna do it and you won't forget her birthday again or whatever it is. But until your actions back up your words, your words are nothing more than talk. And so it is with faith. This is why James says, you show, you tell me you have faith, great. I will show you my faith by what I do. And then he goes so far as to say, faith without works is what? It's dead, It's an empty faith. It's lifeless. There's nothing to it. If your whole goal for a relationship with God is to sit in a church while somebody else talks and somebody else leads worship and you get to enjoy an experience, you are missing out on God. That's why he goes so far, I believe it's in James chapter 2, verse 22, and he says, do not be only hearers of God's word, but do what it says. There's this guy in the Bible, and some of you will quickly figure out who I'm talking about. You know, there's this guy in the Bible, and he's an everyday man. You might call him, he'd be like a plumber in the day, except for there was no indoor plumbing. Thank God we live in America today. But this gentleman was a fisherman, and a fisherman would have been an everyday guy's job. He was blue collar, he's a talk first, think second kind of guy, I like him. He's a hard worker, he's probably physically strong based off what he does and the way we see him presented in the Bible. But there's nothing about him that would be overly attractive or special. He didn't have any kind of unique training at all, especially religious training. He's a lot like Nate in that Nate's going, I don't, who am I? Who am I? Well, that's this guy. And one day Jesus comes to him and says, hey, come follow me. Not just come follow me. I want you to leave everything that you know and come follow me. He literally just had the best day in business in the history of his business. He just caught more fish than any other point. His nets were breaking. He had so many fish. But that was the day he had a crisis of faith, left everything to follow Jesus. Now, there's a whole backstory perhaps on why. Whatever God was doing up to the moment where we meet this gentleman, I'm not 100% sure. But I know this. He'd been following John the Baptist. He'd heard enough things to know that Jesus was something special. What we learn as we continue to track the story, the things he saw, the things that he heard impressed him, wowed him. As Jesus literally turns water into wine. How's that for a Super Bowl party trick? He literally made deaf people hear, blind people see, made people who hadn't been able to walk in years able to walk, just story after story. But deeper than that, he listened to him teach. In fact, at one point in John chapter six, right around verse 66, uh, many people leave Jesus, people who are following him. Other disciples leave Jesus because the things Jesus is saying are so offensive. And Jesus looks at this guy and says, you gonna go too? And he's like, "I I don't know where else to go. 
everything I've seen, everything I hear tells me you're the only one who has the words of life. What you're saying, I don't get, and it's hard. It's a crisis of belief, but he pushes through. And the more he pushes through, as the story goes on, Jesus eventually takes his large group of disciples, and he goes and he prays, and he chooses 12 of them, and he makes the cut. So he's in like the inner grouping. Then Jesus goes beyond that 12, and he grabs three more, and he pulls them even closer. This is leadership 101 by any leader, and especially Jesus. Jesus is always pouring his life into everybody, but especially into a small group and as he pours his life into that group then he expects them to pour their life into others and then their life into others and then their life into others leadership 101 if you're new in leadership you got to do that because you can't lead the masses you can only lead a few and as he begins to do that what happens though is his life looks a lot like our life he begins to think that the god story is his own story and we see multiple times in the text, he's arguing with the other disciples, who's going to be the best and most prominent? The thinking at that time is that Jesus is going to come and set up an earthly kingdom. He's a king. They've been told that for a long time. And when he sets up his kingdom, there's going to be two prominent positions, one on the right, one on the left. And that day, that's where prominent people sat. And so they start fighting. Who do you think he'll pick? And some of them, like one of the guy's moms, even goes to Jesus and says, will you put my one son over here and the other one over there? Well, this guy's left out. And it creates a big fight. The problem is everybody has a wrong understanding of who God is and what he's trying to do in the world. He wants to work through them for God's glory, not for theirs. In fact, at one point, Jesus gathers these guys together and he looks at them and he says, hey, Peter, that's the fisherman's name, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. Now, you may not understand that. My friend Brett, who I believe is in here, he was just on stage. Brett brought us a dollar club. I love Brett. He's doing a phenomenal job. Brett worked for the Nyer Farms before he came on staff. And um, man, he'd tell me about like, like harvest season and, and like when he was, you know, planting the seeds in the ground and how many hours it was. Like I, my heart was like going out to him like a you know, young dad. He's got a bunch of kids. And uh, then he told me after he came on staff that he was riding around in a GPS-controlled machine and he pretty much watched Netflix all day. Brad, I love you. That is not what farming was like in the first century. Sifting in the first century was a violent process whereby they would gather up the wheat and what would happen is the kind of the pieces of the wheat that were dried off and broke off would fall in among the actual wheat. Well, you can't eat that. And so in order to sift out the good stuff and the bad stuff, there was this winnowing process and they would take it and throw it up in the air and the wind would carry away what's called the chaff and the wheat would fall to the ground and it was this violent process. And Jesus looks at Peter, this fisherman, and says, Satan has asked to do this to you, this violent shaking and throwing it up in the air and the clearing away. He wants to test you, Peter. All of this comes on the heels of Jesus just looking at Peter and saying, hey, Peter, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Peter is somewhere puffed up on pride and God. Trying to figure out how those two things come together. Jesus is trying to humble Peter and get Peter to understand who God is and what he's really like. In this whole conversation, Jesus has already predicted to Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. To which Peter looks at Jesus and says, not me, no way. 
you know, the irony is if Jesus is wrong, then he doesn't really matter if he dies on a cross. He's no different than you or me. The fact that he's never wrong allows him to be my savior. But Peter says, no, I will not do that. I will, I will die with you if that's what I have to do. And Jesus says, that's not how it's gonna go, Peter. That's not how it's gonna go. Later that day, Peter would fail. His crisis of a belief moment would come when after dinner and Jesus had been praying in the garden and he, he's so tired. I mean, you get it, right? You've been woke up at 3 a.m. by your babies and you're tired. You're ready to lop people's ear off too. But here he is in the garden. And he's just so worn out. Ministry's been exhausting. I didn't really say that, did I? And he's so tired, but then the Roman soldiers come and Peter remembers the ringing words in his ears of what Jesus said, said, and he jumps up and he lops off a soldier's ear. This is it, here we go. But in his mind, this guy makes the blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk. He raised Lazarus from the dead. Come on, the king is inaugurating his kingdom. Let's go to war. And Jesus says, stops, Peter. This is not what my kingdom is like. And then Jesus is led away and arrested and spit in his face and punched and mocked. And while they're in a trial, Peter follows from a distance. His whole world has just flipped upside down. His crisis of belief moment has come. And standing in a courtyard around some fire, people are warming themselves. And he sees Jesus being tried inside and has no idea what's going to happen next. And somebody comes up to him at the fire and says, aren't you one of those guys who's with Jesus? And Peter says, I don't know the man. And he gets out of that conversation and goes over to another place. And somebody walks by and goes, I recognize your accent. I think you were one of that guy's followers. I don't know him. And then a young servant girl comes up, probably middle school aged, give or take. Says, I recognize you. And the third time he denies it, sure enough, the rooster crows. And it says in the book of Luke, he looks inside where Jesus is being tried and their eyes meet. Peter did not pass his crisis of belief moment. He had an opportunity to tell others about God, but he failed the test. And that's huge. Because later on, a few hours later, when Jesus would die on a cross, and then three days later when he would raise from the dead, that wasn't the end of Peter's story. In fact, in John chapter 21, as we close out the book of John, Jesus gathers the disciples together, and three times, not an accident, he looks at that same Peter, and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, you know I love you, Lord. He says, feed my sheep. You blew it last time, you don't have to blow it next time. Get back to work. In fact, he actually gives him the ultimate compliment. He says, there will come a day at the end of your life, Peter, where somebody will lead you away and you will give up your life. In other words, you will pass the test next time, but not just next time, but many times. See, whenever you get a crisis of belief, it's an opportunity for you to stand back and say, is God good? Check, yes. Is God faithful? Yes. Will God take care of me? Yes. What if it costs me something? He's still good, he's still faithful, he's still trustworthy. You know, it's crazy is if you go back in the story, Jesus told Peter all of this was coming. He told Peter, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, and I want you to know I prayed for you. And afterwards, after you failed, turn back. Take care of the brothers. In other words, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you. There's gonna come a crisis, a belief moment. You're gonna fail the test, and I'm not gonna quit on you because I love you. Come back, come back, and get back to work doing the thing that I have called you to do. 
We see all this then in Matthew, the way Matthew ends his book. In John 21, we end with Jesus on the shore commissioning Peter. But in Matthew, he ends with Jesus on a mountaintop. And here's what it says in Matthew 21, right at the end of verse 18. It says this. Then Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You know why that's huge? Because remember earlier when Jesus said to Peter and the disciples, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. The reason Jesus has authority in heaven and on earth is because he came in the flesh and was obedient unto death. He never sinned. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way that you and I are and never failed in his temptation. And so in the garden, when he's crying out, God, if your will be done, not mine, but please take this cup from me. And God said, no, this is the way. Jesus went all the way unto death and he never turned back. So God handed him the keys to the kingdom of heaven and earth, the entire universe that said, you have all authority. The spiritual things, the physical things, the seen and the unseen, all must obey you. Now, the very next verse, Jesus says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded you. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. In other words, this power, this authority, these keys, here you go. You can come in the house anytime you want. You have all the authority that I have inside you. Go be bold. Go live as if heaven is on earth in you, and I am with you to the very end of the age. But in Acts chapter 15 or 16, like Paul and the disciples, they don't know what God's doing next. They just keep praying and and moving, and God directs their steps. We, We just know God's told us to go. We don't know where we're supposed to go. We just know we're supposed to go. And then one night they have a vision, and God clarifies to them what he wants them to do. Why? Because Jesus was with them. There's this point in Acts 15, and and there's all this trouble happening in the churches that are being planted, and nobody knows exactly what to do, so they gather together, and they pray, and they start talking, and they come to some conclusions. How do we know if these conclusions are the right conclusions or not? How do we know? Because Jesus is with them. There's these moments in the book of Corinthians where Paul is writing to the church in Corinth and he's letting them know about how he's been destitute and beaten and abandoned and persecuted and imprisoned and stoned and left for dead and all these crazy things that happened. And in all of them, never once did he wonder whether God was good. Why? Because he knew Jesus was with him. See, we have crises of belief, and they could come through lack of resources, lack of clarity, lack of whatever, lack of good times, but all of them are the opportunity for us to anchor our faith in something bigger and who God is and then respond and live accordingly. See, the night of Jesus' trial and arrest, after Peter ran from the courtyard, do you know where he went? To the upper room. He went and hid like a person terrified to creep at the door. So now what happens? When Jesus goes out of heaven, did Peter ever have a crisis of belief again? I think the scripture reveals this. 
Jesus tells them, I want you to go, in fact, go back to that upper room. I'm about to send God, the Holy Spirit, to be inside you. This is huge, by the way. In the Old Testament, a little teaching on theology and doctrine. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit didn't reside in its people. It would come upon somebody, and then it would leave. So the Holy Spirit would come upon somebody, a prophet, or whatever, would speak to them, communicate to them, and then the Spirit would leave. The Spirit now in a believer lives. God lives in the believer. You are the temple of God on earth, little walking temples, thousands of you here at Kingsway, and Millions of you here in the United States and billions if you go around the world. Little temples of God, the presence of God moving all over the earth in you and through you. And so Peter goes up to the upper room. He receives the Holy Spirit. And then what happens is each chapter following that as an example of Peter or somebody else filled with the presence of God no longer running away from their crisis of belief moments, stepping into them. In fact, we get to Acts chapter 3. We see this same Peter and he is bold now. He and John are walking on their way to the temple. And on their way there, it says there's a lame man. Don't think of lame like today, Mr. Terms, like, dude, that's lame. Lame in that day would have meant something along the lines of crippled or some sort of physical uh, disability or possible deformity. We don't know exactly what it was, but we know that it's been this way for a long, long, long time. The dude's 40 years old. And everybody knows him because he's sitting on the side of the road asking for alms. Alms were something commanded for the people in that day to have kind of like change in your pocket, money on the side. And when you saw somebody need and they asked for alms it was commanded to give them alms the religious of the day in Jesus day love to do this this is huge for us by the way just a quick side note it's important for us to distinguish righteous deeds good things done for the glory of God and righteous deeds good things done for the glory of self the Bible tells us there are plenty of people in the world who are doing good things to build their own kingdom. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, and on the last day, many are gonna cry out, Lord, Lord, look what we did in your name. We cast out demons. We healed people. We looked like we had this great relationship with you. And Jesus will look at them and say, away from me, I never knew you. Wow. So see, it is possible to serve God for yourself and not for God. But the power of God will still be present because there's just something about that name, Jesus, something powerful and profound. That's why it comes through a relationship with him. It's why Jesus says in John 15, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Anyone who remains in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. And Peter believes it now. He's got past his crisis and he's on his way to the temple and he sees the lame man. And the man says, alms, alms. And Peter looks at him and he's like, dude, I'm a, I'm a former fisherman who's like a traveling preacher. I got nothing. But here's what I do have. Get up and walk. And the guy gets up and he starts walking. I had a major foot surgery 10, 12 years ago or so. It was weeks, months of surgery and rehab and crutches and you know, all this stuff. And I tell you, you do not start to walk easy. I remember trying to play basketball for the first time. I rolled my ankle like three times, it like re-injured stuff. This guy hasn't walked maybe his whole life, but at least in decades, and he gets up and immediately he's running and jumping around, and everybody's looking around going, I've seen that guy like every day on the way to the temple. Like I knew him when we were in grade school. He's not faking it. This guy is legit, and they start to believe. In fact, we're told that the number goes from Acts 2 or so to 3,000 believers to Acts 3 to 5,000 believers, and the Lord keeps adding to their number daily, those who are believing, because the power of the testimony. By the way, if you aren't sure you believe in all this stuff, then tell me some other explanation, because it would have been so easy for somebody in that day to simply go, that story is made up. I was there that day. Where's that document in history? I don't know where it is because it doesn't exist. 
And when that happens, people start believing, well, that makes the religious elite really mad because they've been trying to squash this Jesus thing for a long time. In fact, they had Jesus put to death. Here's what happens in Acts chapter four, verse two. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put him in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed. So the number who believed, men who believed, grew to about 5,000. Acts 7, 4, 7. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. I love that. Because I'm thinking if I'm Peter and this is my crisis of belief moment, the whole reason I didn't speak up at the courtyard, the whole reason I let little middle school girl intimidate me is because I was afraid they might arrest me. Well, they've already arrested me and put me in prison. Here's my trial. I'm thinking I might leave out the part about you did this. I might sit there and go, hey, you know, we did this in the name of Jesus. It's a powerful name. You've seen him do miracles. We're just doing what he did too. Isn't it great? This guy got healed, everybody. We ready to move on now? I, like, I might like soft push this. And Peter's like, you did this. And everybody here knows you killed him. How'd Peter do with this crisis of belief moment? Second time, I'd say he passed the test. Look at verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we could be saved or must be saved, depending on your translation. See, not Buddha or Allah, not working really, really hard at being really, really good. None of those things are gonna get you to paradise, nirvana, bliss, heaven, whatever you wanna call the thing that happens after life, None of them can get you there. There's literally only one name under heaven whereby we must be saved. I didn't clap for Jesus. And look, if you're sitting here and that offends you, I'm not trying to offend you. It's just that I've had my crisis of belief moment and I know I gotta tell you what you need to hear. No matter how bad you may not wanna hear it. But see, for most of this room, most of the people in here watching online today are gonna be Christians. That doesn't offend us because we believe that, we buy that. The question is, are we going to live our lives in response to that belief? Are we going to shrink back, hide, run away from the story that God is trying to live in us? Notice what happens in verse 13. When they saw the courage of Peter and John, they realized these were unschooled, ordinary men. Hold on for a second. Did you catch that? There was nothing impressive about them. They didn't have the right training. They didn't have the right qualifications. They'd only been out of the country twice. Okay, I'm gonna put in Nate's comment there. But that's how we argue with God, right? Not me, not good enough, not qualified. Jesus just says, I don't call that a good excuse. Nope. Have you been with me? They were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. Your power, your authority, your courage, your boldness comes from you being with Jesus. 
But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with him, (laughs) there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. And I love what's about to happen because that means one of the people who were in this room that was closed door meeting, somebody in that group later becomes a Christian and reports the story. Because we got a closed door meeting and somebody saying, let me tell you what they said when you left the room. Here's what they said, verse 16. What are we gonna do with these men? They asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they've performed a notable sign and we can't deny it. So instead of believing, instead of trusting Let's stop this thing from spreading any further among the people. We must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. And I I find it ironic that they won't say the name. Remember earlier when they asked Peter and John, by whose name do you do this? This is a really big deal to the religious elite in Jesus' day. Everything they did was by somebody else's name. One of the major teachers of that day, rabbis, his name was Gamaliel. And they would often say, well, Gamaliel said, or Gamaliel taught, but Jesus shows up and he says, you've heard it said this, I say this. And people, including the disciples, were always amazed. He teaches with authority. He teaches as if he knows. He teaches as one with power. He doesn't teach as if somebody else taught him. He teaches as if he's him. And now these guys are teaching that same way. And they won't say his name. But yet again, as I already told you in John 15, Jesus says, apart from me, you could do nothing. In John 14, Jesus says, anything you ask for in my name, I will do for you. Actually, he says that your heavenly father will do for you. In Revelation, we find out that on the last day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess the name of Jesus. At the power of Jesus' name, powerful things happen. This is why we end every prayer with in Jesus' name. It's not because we're trying to manipulate God like, ha ha, we said in Jesus' name, now you have to do it. It's because we believe that when Jesus is with us, Jesus is in us, and we can live boldly in response to Jesus. In the book, there were four realities we've covered so far. Today we're at reality number five. Here's reality number five. God's invitation for you to work with him always leads you to a crisis of belief that requires faith and action. So God is at work all around you. He's pursuing a relationship with everybody and he's inviting you to join him in the story of pursuing others and bringing glory to his name through his story in you on earth. But this requires not just faith, not just showing up at church, singing a song, attending a class. This requires you getting your hands dirty with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the lives of other people. And I am scared that some of you will pass that up. That You will leave here today. You might even text somebody later and say, wasn't that a good sermon today? But your lives will bear no fruit for the glory of God. I hate to see dead faith in people I love. In the book, Henry Cloud says, the major turning point is where many people miss out on experiencing God's mighty power working through them. Most of us think, if we cannot understand exactly how everything is going to happen, then they won't proceed They want to walk with God by sight, not by faith. But Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And it also tells us, 
Faith is the evidence of things unseen. We believe in God that we cannot see him. We see his effects, we see his work, and we know it. We just have this faith. He is real, and he's working, and he's moving, and he's acting, and we can trust him, and so we act accordingly. Back to my friend Nate. He said this. What we would eventually learn, though, is God had something much bigger in mind for our trip. I knew in my heart that God had all this under control, even though we didn't. I also knew that he was stretching me in my three-ring binder. Our team was anxious, confused, and still grieving over not returning to see the country in Haiti that we fell in love with. Most of the people on this team had been there and just really loved the people. But we got a call a couple hours later that our, some friends in the Dominican Republic had agreed without any hesitation for us to come there. We would take the first flight available, which would be roughly 18 hours later in the airport. It was during this time that our team actually really began to form the foundations for relationships that would work over the next week. We also learned at this time that no one on the trip had ever been to the DR before, the Dominican Republic. Apparently, God thought it was time for us to go see the DR. By God's grace, we were able to transfer a lot of what we prepared for Haiti over to the DR. We had four VBS down there. We got to spend time with a bunch of kiddos from the neighboring villages. God's fingerprints were all over this trip. Imagine an OCD detail guy like myself and having no idea what each day held for the most part. I found comfort that my job wasn't to always know, but to trust that God knew and he was directing our steps. We followed God blindly and he blessed us with opportunity after opportunity. There were so many beautiful moments that I just can't put into words. One night, a simple question from one of the young girls on the trip led my wife and I to sharing our testimony, which then led to a couple of other young people sharing their testimony, which eventually led to the group asking a bunch of questions. Next thing I know, two people on our trip surrendered to Christ and got baptized. Yeah, isn't that awesome? It was the perfect end to a perfect trip. We were never even supposed to be on in the first place. Our number one goal when we began planning this trip was to try to outserve the missionaries. We learned very quickly that was not going to happen. Tim Gerber finally deduced that when we serve God's people, we're actually serving God. So in reality, our goal was to try to outserve God. Obviously, this was never going to happen, and it surely did not. And it seemed the harder we tried, the more God did. Church, the more you try to outserve God, the more you try to outtrust God, the more you try to outfaith God, the more God shows up. You can literally never outdo him. But you could certainly underdo him. You could simply not step into faith. You could never be bold. You could never take a chance. You could never go with God. You could never pursue him. You could just play it safe and have a comfortable life your whole life. You could do that. But on that last day, I wonder what regrets you might have for doing it. Acts chapter four, we're almost done here. Acts chapter four. They call Peter and John back in. It says, verse 18. When they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Crisis of faith moment. They're threatening them. In fact, if you read the next chapter, they threaten them with some serious stuff. You know what we did to Jesus, fine. You're gonna accuse us of that? Stop, or it could go just as bad for you. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him. You be the judge. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Did Peter and John pass the crisis of faith moment the next time? You bet they did. 
Listen to this. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. I like that guy. (laughs) I'm only 30, but just kidding. But here's the key thing. When they go back, Peter and John go back, they gather with the other disciples and believers. It says they gathered in one place. Peter prays a prayer over them. Go read the prayer later. Essentially, I'm summarizing, I'm not quoting. Essentially, it goes like this. Peter basically goes, oh, heavenly father, uh, wow. Um, We are literally standing in the middle of time. Everything is unfolding as your prophets told us long ago it would. Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, and now you're sending us out. And we're realizing we are living in the middle of prophesied time. And everything is happening according to your plan. So when I realize how big and powerful God is and he knows everything there is to know, and I realize that I am safe inside his will, nothing anybody else can do to me can hurt me. So what am I afraid of? Go read his prayer, it's crazy, because basically here's what they pray. Lord, consider all of the threats being thrown against us. Consider it. Yeah, like, God, just make sure you're thinking about it. And then, get them. That's not what he says. Crush them, God. Nope. You know what he says? And give us, your servants, boldness to keep doing what you asked us to do. In light of all the potential pitfalls, dangers, pain, suffering, sacrifice that's going to require to get the job done, help us to be bold enough to do it anyway. In Jesus' name, amen. If you get nothing else, I would say to get this. A crisis of belief is the moment where your faith meets action. A crisis of belief is the moment where your faith meets action. And Henry Blackaby says it this way. God wants a watching world to come to know who He truly is. He does not call you to get involved in his activity merely so people can see what you can do. He will call you to an assignment that you cannot accomplish apart from his divine intervention. God's assignments have God-sized dimensions. This does not mean God does not ask us to undertake mundane, seemingly ordinary tasks. But when God is involved in anything, there are always eternal divine dimensions, implications, and possibilities. And what do we do with all of this? Two things. Number one, maybe some of you in here are hearing the call of God in your life to join him in something significant. I know last year we did a mission Sunday and over 500 people, I think it was 515 people signed up and said they want to go. I think by the end when we come up here, we're about a month away from that anniversary, a little over 200 people will have went. That means 300 people had a crisis of faith and they were too busy they couldn't figure out the financial make it work. They weren't ready to sacrifice vacation time. And some people are like, Pastor, that's kind of harsh. You don't understand. One person told me, well, I have two kids and they're getting married this year. I don't doubt that. But the mission trips weren't all during the wedding time. Well, But it's just a lot of work. I know it is. You had a crisis of belief moment. Do I believe God is who he says he is? Do I believe that he'll show up, provide everything that I need to do everything he's called me to do? Did I hear from him? Did he call me to do it? And 300 Kingsway people said, mm, I don't think so. The good news is that's not the end of your story you get another chance in three weeks. I think that's right. On the 30th, two weeks, no math at Bible college. But here's the thing. Some of you right now are struggling to live out your faith in everyday life. We have a boatload of ministries here that we put together to serve this community, the body of Christ here at Kingsway, and the world. And if you are simply hearing about God and believing in your heart but not living it out, I wanna encourage you to make the day that changes. You'll notice in front of you there's a serve card. It just says serve on it. You can grab one right now. On one side, it gets gets asked for some information like your name and email address and those kinds of things. And then on the other side, it just says, here's some various ministries we have at our church to serve in. You can even check serve around the world. I wanna go on a mission trip. I wanna serve. 
I just wanna challenge you right now that if God is stirring in you to join him in the work he's doing in the world, to not just sit here and hear a message, but to actually join him in the work that he's doing at Kingsway. You could take that card to our um, Connect Hub right here when you walk out these doors and just give it to them and they'll take it from there. What I wanna do right now is I wanna pray a bold prayer over you because you're gonna go into communion and have time to spend with Jesus. And I just wanna pray a bold prayer like Peter's prayer over you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Oh God, every single one of us wants to live a significant life. But it gets really easy, God, to get distracted by our stories and the things that we're doing, whether it's for you or for ourselves. Heavenly Father, we repent right now. We turn to you. We ask for your mercy and your forgiveness, God, for all the ways that we've lived our lives for ourselves. God, forgive us for all the times that we weren't bold enough to open our mouth and proclaim your goodness. Father, forgive us for all the times where we put our own wants and desires and needs above yours. Father, right now, we pray that you would transform us through your all-encompassing, pursuing love, just like you did Peter. We thank you for your faithfulness to Peter. It's an encouraging example to us, God, that you are good and your mercy endures forever. Father, transform us. We may never stand on trial threatened with physical harm or death for our faith, but God, sometimes it costs us our families, sometimes it costs us business deals, sometimes it costs us friendships, Some, most of the time it costs us money and time and effort and energy, sometimes it creates anxiety. There's all kinds of things, God, but we offer them all to you because this life, this body, this heart, this mind, this soul, this strength, it's all for you, God, pour it out. It's yours. Take it and direct our lives as you please. In Jesus' name.